0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Dr. Jill Mora Rabin, author and professor of obstetrics and gynecology at the Zucker School of Medicine, Hostra University. Uh, her new book is Mind Over Bladder, a step by step guide to achieving continence. Bladder incontinence affects as much as half of the female population, yet, many are too embarrassed to seek help. Noted u- urogynecologist Jill Mora Rabin offers an informative, easy to understand guide that will give women back their freedom and help them regain control over their bladder. Supported by extensive clinical research, she demystifies a frightening medical problem and acquaints readers with all available therapies. She seeks to educate women of all ages on the many causes of incontinence and the variety of treatment options available. Uh, Dr. Raven has authored four books on women's health, and her numerous awards and honors have included the Excellence in Teaching Award from the Association of Professors in Gynecology and Obstetrics. Welcome to the show, Dr.
1: Rabin. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Great to have you. Uh, today, I have to tell you, you're my first guest, my second guest. we're talking about taboo subjects, bladder, women's bladders are taboo subjects. And then second topic today is going to be cannabis, which is also another taboo topic. So good to start out with you. Uh, Just before the show, we started talking and I said, great uh, uh, title for the book, Mind Over Bladder. And you said, well, there's a story behind that. So tell us the story behind the title of the book.
1: Thank you. Well, we had written the book. I had written this one, and I was standing online at Costco in the days when I went into Costco a lot. And um, I had a full cart, and um, my little son was with me, and he was in the the little carriage. And a woman in front of me who was carrying one of these big pallets full of, you know, those big pallets full of things much bigger than a regular cart. And she gave me that look, and she said to me, "Would, would you watch my cart? It was a long line. We had plenty of time. And I said, of course. And I, re- I was looking for a title for the book, and as she rushed off, she had that look in her eye, that gotta go look. And I said to myself, well, really, it's just a matter of mind over bladder. And it came to me, literally, the light bulb went on in a flash. And that was the title of the book.
0: That's a great story, and no one tried to change the title. I mean, who would want to, but sometimes, as we mentioned, we were talking publicists try to do that, but mind over bladder, perfect. Okay, so this is a taboo topic. I mean, it's why is it? Why are we afraid or why are we embarrassed or ashamed to talk about our bladders? And as women, I mean, we'll talk about our menstrual cycles, we'll talk about
1: birth, we'll talk about all of those other kinds of things, but not our bladders. Well, you know, just to cut to the... to the chase. I think that the main there are a couple of main reasons. One of the main ones, the major ones, is that um, women think that it's normal, and even though they may everybody knows somebody who leaks. Let's face it, and people think, oh, it's just part of aging, and that's a myth. And that's you know, although it affects. Two out of every five women under the age of 60, it does affect younger women. Three out of every five women over the age of 60 or 61, um, we think that it's 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 okay, and uh, so we just accept it as a part of life. But um, as I mentioned to you before we started broadcasting, it is the second most common reason women enter nursing homes. So it is something that we do have to deal with. It, but the other piece of this is um, women think that um, if they do mention it to their doctors they or providers or nurse practitioner or PA or midwife, they may be dismissed or they may hear right away, oh, you need surgery, which um, may is usually not the case. A well-timed surgery is absolutely invaluable, but it's not something that we think of as a first-line therapy most of the time. So people think that it's just going to be a, a, a surgery. So there are many, many other treatments for this, and, and we'll, we'll get into that, uh, but people people are afraid that they're going to need an operation right away so not only is that not true um, but it, uh, there is there are treatments available for incontinence and pelvic organ prolapse which is when the bladder drops or the rectum or uterus drops and there are treatments for this that are conservative non-surgical treatments and a good well-timed surgery if necessary if it's decided upon by the by the woman um, that's a patient's choice so the most important thing is to get a diagnosis and treatment plan which we'll go into um, so that's that's really the reason that people delay. I do want to mention, but, but that I have in to context- stop you
0: there because I just sure. want to stop you there because you're talking about professionals, yes, and not wanting to say anything to your doctor or your healthcare provider because you don't want to yes. have surgery or your whatever you're afraid of what the outcome will be. But why don't women talk about it? As a social worker, I probably have. I do have experience with this that women don't seem to want to talk about it amongst themselves even. Do you know what I mean? Don't want to say that young, particularly younger women, like that they're yeah. incontinent or yes, that they you know they're having difficulty with bat- bladder control. Why do you think that is?
1: I think one of the most common reasons, even though incontinence is as common as arthritis and heart disease and, and many common conditions, you're, if you're sitting next to your best friend at a board meeting or, or a PTA meeting, um, you're, you're more likely to say, I just had a little chest pain. Would you call 911? Or I just had the worst attack of arthritis rather than I just had the biggest leak. Re- that speaks directly to the heart of the issue. Urine smells and people can recognize it. And if you have a bleeding problem or a back problem or arthritis, that's not associated with social distaste. And unfortunately, leaking urine does have an odor most of the time and people can recognize it and that is really a devastating situation.
0: So there are two, as you describe in the book there, one of the, we'll start with the most common uh, diagnoses for incontinence and that's stress incontinence. What is stress incontinence?
1: Women and men leak urine because the bladder pressure is greater than the pressure of the urethra or the little tube that causes the urine to be expelled out into the outside world, into the toilet, hopefully. And uh, that only happens when bladder pressure is higher than urethral pressure. There's only three reasons that people leak. Uh, One is a problem with the muscles, that they're weak. The connective tissue that connects the bladder with the muscle is torn. Um, Or there's a problem with the nerves that allow... the bladder to contract and relax. So stress incontinence is a problem with the muscle or the connective tissue that's weak or torn. And when a woman coughs, laughs, or sneezes, a spurt of urine can come out, and that's called stress incontinence. And that's because of a weakness of the muscle or connective tissue, and that usually happens. There are many reasons. One is childbirth. One is menopause. You lose your estrogen, so your muscle and connective tissue don't work as well. The nerves don't work as well. And uh, there are other reasons, such as smoking and obesity, increased pressure on the bladder, pushing the bladder down, so there's a leak with stress, with cough. We call it stress is cough or laugh or sneeze. So it's muscle and connective tissue weakness, very common.
0: Now, when you have a baby, they, they encourage you to do Kegel exercises. Can you talk about that and say that that will help strengthen, I guess, the muscle and the connective tissue uh, after childbirth?
1: Absolutely, and if younger women did their Kegel exercises, we call it now pelvic floor muscle exercises, or PFME, or Kegel. Basically, when if you, I'll make you an analogy, uh, Catherine. If you lift weights progressively, or if you exercise your arms, your bicep muscles are going to basically get enlarged and and grow, and that's called hypertrophy. Well, the muscle in your arm, the bicep muscle, is identical in terms of the type of muscle, voluntary muscle, um, to your pelvic floor and the sphincter or the valve on the urethra that helps close off the urine from leaking. So if you exercise those muscles like you exercise your biceps, your pelvic floor is going to thicken. And I tell my patients, you can make your pelvic floor turn from a veal cutlet, a little thin piece of meat, to a filet mignon. You can thicken the pelvic muscle and the urethral sphincter, and that will help lift the bladder and prevent leakage with cough, laugh, and sneeze. So these exercises really do work.
0: Not, and one of the things that you have in your book, which I think is important, is, is diagrams. Because I think many women don't even know what the anatomy looks like uh, when you're talking about strengthening your bla or strengthening the muscles. Right? You know what your biceps look like or triceps or whatever. But you don't really. But I, I think a majority of women really don't understand the anatomy. And 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 if we did and had more that we would follow those, it's what you're talking about, those kinds of instructions so that we can strengthen our
1: bladder. Absolutely, and if young women did these exercises, even in college and high school, we see elite athletes coming into my office, to our offices, every week with leaking, and they're wearing tampons to hold up the bladder when they're playing their golf or their tennis or their bowling or whatever, and if people did this when they're young and then in between their pregnancies, we would see a whole lot less women in the office. As, you know, as they age, we would have much people with much stronger pelvic floors and less stress incontinence. That's exactly right.
0: Then you'd have to change your specialty.
1: <laughs> <I would. laughs> you know something? Women generally wait, we used to say seven yeah. years, but with incontinence. And now we see women waiting only about three years. So we're, it's getting better.
0: All right. So this, let, then let's talk about the second most common form of incontinence, which is urge incontinence. What's that and what's, that, what's the difference between that and stress incontinence?
1: Urgent continence is what you see on TV, the gotta go, gotta go, when sometimes you wait too long or, you know, you don't wait too long, but you have urgent incontinence. The bladder capacity exceeds the ability of the urethra to hold off and the nerves contract the bladder without your permission. And that's why we call the book Mind Over Bladder, because one of the major, if not the major reason that women are able to not have, we call unstable bladder contractions, is because when you get, or is that, when you get the urge to go, your brain, because of these central nervous system loops that control the voluntary muscle of the bladder and pelvic floor, the brain says no and that's the toilet training loop and that's exactly why when we were little and our moms or dads or adults said to us go to the bathroom we're going you know go try to go we're going on a long car ride and if you were a rotten kid like me you would say but I don't have to go but lo and behold if your parents said well go try and urine came out when you went to the bathroom and that's because the the brain said you know I want to go on this trip okay I'll, I'll let my bladder contract and the brain is in charge of the bladder for the most part there's also it's a little bit more complex than that but the main issue is the brain says yes or no. When the brain can't say no anymore for various reasons, then the bladder contracts and empties the whole bladder contents and that's overactive bladder, um, the gotta go, and that's a nerve problem. That's a nerve problem that the, the brain, the nerves from the brain to the bladder, simply have lost their ability con- to control that contraction. And that can happen from, from many, many reasons. Um, one, uh, major reason is that there are irritants to the bladder that overwhelm the brain's ability to say no. And some of those are medications. I don't want anybody to stop their medications or change medications. You have to talk to your doctor um, or your provider. Um, Don't change your medications. But there are 300 medications that do cause leakage and uh, on a brain basis for the most part. So that is one factor. Uh, We lose our estrogen so that the nerves don't have the ability to control as well as before. For the brain bladder loop, I call it, and many many other reasons. Um, there is some some artificial sweeteners are, uh, as well as uh, some alcohol for some people, hot peppery foods or caffeine. I'm sure you've heard irritate the bladder and overwhelm the brain's ability to stop those contractions. Um, so for people who have overactive bladder, one of the first things I do is address the reversible causes of incontinence, um, which are the diapers mnemonic. We go through that in the book. And uh, basically, it uh, lists a lot of the factors that are reversible that you can change to reverse the incontinence. For example, for some women who have a bladder infection, the most common one is E. coli. It's a bacteria. That can irritate so badly that it can paralyze the sphincter of the urethra, part of the sphincter, so the urethra just, just opens, and the brain can't stop that. And uh, that's one of, the, one of the reasons, medications, uh, coughing, um chronic coughing from smoking uh, obesity various other factors so we address the reversible causes of incontinence first but the most well, important let's talk thing about is it. To I'm going to stop
0: you there cuz let's talk about some of those things that you can do other obviously than having surgery uh, because you talk about behavioral therapy there are some very specific kinds of things that your patients uh, or or we, as women can do in order to control and to facilitate bladder training without Absolutely. having surgery
1: yeah let's talk Absolutely. about the behavioral therapy yeah Yes. Well, the most important thing is to get a diagnosis. And we mentioned stress and urge. There's something called mixed incontinence, which is when you have both stress and urge incontinence. So it's a problem with the muscle connective tissue and the nerves. And that's not uncommon either, but we can approach that. The single most important thing is to get an accurate diagnosis and to make a menu with your doctor with your doctor of your treatment options. And that is something that you can choose and order in terms of what do you wanna try first, second, and third so that you are in control of your health, your pelvic floor health. So for example, and I want to mention one more thing. When you do your Kegel exercises, and not only do you strengthen your pelvic floor and urethra, the muscles, but it also is a reflex that quiets the bladder. So if you have uh, an element of overactive bladder with your stress incontinence, doing those exercises will also quiet your bladder and help treat the overactive bladder. So you get a diagnosis. So if your diagnosis, in terms of treatments, if your diagnosis, for example, is either stress urge or mixed incontinence just to hit the big three. nobody ever died from doing behavioral therapies from kegel exercises so we look at the, the reversible causes also to see what we can change and then we look at the behavioral therapies the lifestyle changes so we ask people to try and normalize the body weight a little bit um, if your mammogram is negative and your doctor you know gives you the go-ahead a little topical estrogen vaginally may help and that comes in, how, in the form yeah I'm going to the-
0: stop you there too because how much because there are so many women you know statistically who are over overweight or obese, how does that affect your incontinence?
1: if you well, it, when you're obese, it increases the pressure on the bladder, forcing the bladder through the muscle with weak muscle and connective tissue. If you have stress incontinence, the more you cough, the bigger your inf- pressure in the abdomen is from your overweight. That presses on the bladder and pushes the bladder down and gives you like a little, you know, stress incontinence with the weak muscle and connective tissue. If you think of it, it's like a little hernia when you cough, laugh, sneeze. That bladder uh, and urethra come right through the muscle, even though it's covered with vagina with skin, right behind that's your bladder. So, um, you know, obesity, even losing 5% of your body weight um, towards your ideal weight can reduce your incontinence by up to 10 to 12%. So a little bit of weight loss goes a long way. Uh, as if you need another reason, you know, we need other reasons to be a little less heavy. America is growing after all, but that's a very big factor. So so lifestyle changes, stopping smoking as if we need other reasons to stop smoking. But when you smoke and you cough, again, it's just like being overweight. It presses on the bladder. So overweight, smoking, looking at your medications with your doctor, maybe a little vaginal estrogen, making sure you don't have a bladder infection. All these reversible causes is going to help. And in terms of treatments, uh, for stress incontinence, obviously, we mentioned uh, Kegel exercises or pelvic floor muscle exercise will help lift the bladder and uh, strengthen the urethra and the pelvic floor, and that's a very, very good therapy for stress incontinence. For pure stress incontinence, um, other therapies, in addition to the, the um, lifestyle modifications, um, basically, we do have... Um, uh there's a medication um, that uh, that that can be used um, that may, uh, help uh, a little bit in terms of the estrogen, but then again with your doctor with a negative mammogram, that may help a little bit. And if you have uh, also prolapse or a very a low pelvic floor, there are these vaginal support devices or pessaries, and there's a special tampon um, <clears throat> that you can buy in the drugstore um, uh, that one of the companies makes to lift the bladder. And you can wear it either every day or you can wear it just during the daytime. And that lifts the bladder if you can't, for some reason, do pelvic floor exercises. Uh, there's also you can work with a physical therapist for fel- pelvic floor muscle exercises if you you know need help to identify and strengthen your pelvic floor. These days there are many many physical therapists who specialize in pelvic floor and they can help you uh, and they're I- invaluable because you know let's face it, doing Kegel exercises can get a little bit boring. But if you do need a little help, the physical therapists are available for that. And if what you about do the, te-
0: what about the time frame for
1: that uh, doctor like the time frame uh, so. yeah yeah yeah, well, if you try it on your own, uh, Arnold Cagle wrote the original uh, literature in 1946, I believe. <clears throat> he said you have to do the contractions. You uh, you have to do about 100 contractions a day for six weeks to see a result. In truth, probably 60 is enough for six weeks to really see a result. And if you need motivation, a physical therapist can help. They also uh, you can also have your doctor order you, or you can order online these vaginal weights or cones that look like tampons. Each one is a little heavier than the next. And if you do these about 30 minutes a day, 30 minutes, if you can hold that cone in the vagina, you can graduate to the next one, which is a little bit heavier. And if you do the full set of five or six cones, about one month each, if you can actually do this, this also strengthens the pelvic floor tremendously. Um, If it falls out, you have to keep doing until you can do that for 30 days in a row. And then there's the physical therapist. Um, I will tell you that a pessary will hold in your vagina better if you strengthen your pelvic floor first, but some people just say, give me the pessary, the support device, teach me to use it, or the doctor can clean it, or the nurse practitioner can clean it for you. It holds up the pelvic floor. But a pessary will be held in the vagina better. And if you have surgery for prolapsed or fallen organs, if or stress incontinence, if you do your exercises before, for six months or so before your surgery, and after a year after if you continue with physical therapy, the surgery will last longer, and hopefully you'll only need that one well-timed surgery if you choose it with your doctor.
0: One thing I like pretty- about your book mm-hmm. is you have, you know, you've been talking about all these, well, I guess you call them mechanical devices, but there are pictures, there are photographs in the book of these mechanical devices, so we know exactly what you're talking about, which is very helpful because there's a whole Thank variety you. of them. It,
1: yeah. Thank you so much. We, uh, we had fun writing it, and I hope it helps a lot of people. And I just want to mention for urge incontinence, that's a nerve problem. So there are medications, and the physical therapy, believe it or not, the Kegel exercises, as I mentioned, when you do them, it quiets the bladder. So there are many medications available and physical therapy, both of which can treat urge incontinence, and those are very, very effective. We now have a new therapy called pretibial nerve stimulation, where we stimulate uh, a one Point on the ankle, either right or left, thirty minutes, uh, thirty minutes once a week, and it's for most states. It's covered by Medicare. Um, but I don't know the rules in every single state, but um, aside from the copay, and it's twelve weeks of treatment, thirty minutes a week, and that is. In, uh, basically stimulates uh, the tibial nerve, the pre-tibial nerve, and that quiets the bladder because that is a branch of the nervous system that I mentioned in the ankle. Believe it or not, goes right to the bladder, and the literature and my in our practice, we have patients getting better, about fifty to seventy-five percent better reduction in incontinence, their urge incontinence. That works beautifully. Uh, we also have a pacemaker for the bladder called Interstim that we can place, um, and that's a surgical. Uh, very minimally invasive surgical procedure for people with overactive bladder, and nothing has helped. This has helped uh, and given uh, back people's, um, you know, thousands of, of women back their lives for people who can't really has to have tried everything. So medication, physical therapy, both work for urgent continence and the tibial nerve stimulation. Is both. there a you big can...
0: difference or a huge difference between, I'm assuming there is, male and female incontinence?
1: Yeah, you know, women leak more than men, and there's a, there are many reasons for that. Think of it, men's urethras are much longer. Than, our urethra is uh, basically, t- you know, two inches, maybe even two inches long. The sphincter, the uh, valve, is inside the urethra and is only about, you know, an inch and a half at best. So a male urethra is much longer than a female urethra. We also, Men don't have children. Men don't go through menopause. So there are many, <laughs> many reasons why women leak um, much much more than men. That's correct. But the actual, you know, how the bladder works is basically uh, almost the same in women and men, what I described.
0: When you go to a, one goes to their primary care physician or provider, I don't really remember them asking any or too many questions about bladder control. Uh, uh, Yeah, which should be there, shouldn't, aren't these the kinds of questions initially that we should be asked when we, seek out a primary care physician?
1: Absolutely. You know, we may not have a lot of time to spend with patients, but if you treat every patient as your only patient while they're in front of you and you ask and elicit these questions, I tell my patients, bring your questions. If you have concerns, if you leak, if you have a, please write them down. I go to the doctor, I forget my questions. So you write them down, bring your questions, and if they don't ask you, you ask them. And, you know, if you if you really... Ha- I call it the doctor-patient relationship because it is a relationship you have to trust your doctor. If they're not listening, you feel dismissed or marginalized or whatever, you know, you, your m- most insurance plans give you a panel of physicians. Um, shop around until you find somebody who's going to listen to you and take you seriously. And most primary care physicians, you know, end up referring to a urogynecologist like myself or a urologist um, or a gynecologist can also take care of some of these things, but mainly do end up referring to a, a urogyne, a urogynecologist or urologist occasionally. Um, we all work together and it's, it's really important to get your questions answered and, and be heard. You have to be heard.
0: How, how did you get into the specialty? I'm always curious as a urogynecologist.
1: Um... <laughs> Well, you know, I was trained in OBGYN and my chairman in those days said to me, you know, you know, Jill, when I do these surgeries, because we, we, we operate, um, OBGYNs in those days operated on the uterus and colorectal surgeons on the rectum and urologists on the bladder and everybody worked separately. He said, you know, we're working separately and I noticed that when I do a surgery for the uterus, the bladder falls or uh, the, when, when the colorectal people do it, the, the, you know, the uterus falls. We have to work together. So he sent me... Um, um... Dr. Ravinsky sent me to the urologist, to the chairman and co-chair, vice chair of urology, who trained me as a fellow in, for three years in, in urology, and they let me continue working here um, at Northwell, in those days, uh, L.I.J. Northwell. And um, I was able to train in urology, and I was fascinated by the subject, and I just it was just a totally organic choice for me. It wasn't made for me, but I, I totally loved it. And, and it just built from there. I've been doing this for... Um, over 35 years, and uh, I, I absolutely love helping people and and uh, helping give people their lives back and giving women control back over their pelvic floors.
0: Well, that's great, and it's a great book, and I think you're doing just that with the book. So I want to uh, mention the book one more time, Mind Over Bladder. Great title, as we said, A Step-by-Step Guide to Achieving Continence, and it is a step-by-step guide. It's very practical, easy read, sort of... Um, just keep it on your bookshelf. What, uh, Dr. Raven, what website and or websites can we go to to find out more about what you're doing? And also, I'm assuming you can get the book online, Amazon, bookstores everywhere.
1: Absolutely. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all over the place. I want to mention my wonderful co-authors, Gail Stein, and my uh, wonderful uh, colleague, Danielle O'Shaughnessy, Dr. Danielle O'Shaughnessy, my co-authors for the book. Our website is Mind over Bladder Books mindoverbladderbooks.com, mindoverbladderbooks.com, and it's available everywhere, including on the Kindle.
0: Great. Thank you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I certainly learned a lot, and I know all of my listeners have too as well. Thank you.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.